people are so quick to impose burdens on others and when the burden is applied on them, suddenly they realize how much of a burden it is. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Welcome back, my friends, to the Lions of Liberty podcast, where I strive to advance the ideas of liberty. And it's been a crazy past week or so with the Iowa caucus. We've had Rand Paul dropping out. We've had more debates. We've had the New Hampshire primary. There has just been so much going on. But we're going to try to ground things a little bit for you today. We're going to get away from all the current event stuff, and we're going to get into another interesting conversation with another great guest in this episode number 183 of this program. And that means you can find today's show notes over at lionsofliberty.com slash 183. Today's show is sponsored by Health Excellence Select, an incredible, free market, affordable, legal alternative to your standard Obamacare corporatized insurance. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. My guest today is the editor-in-chief of the Pan Am Post, which focuses on civil liberties issues in the Americas. He is a New Zealand native, an economic consultant, and a world traveler. His articles have been nationally syndicated all over Canada and the United States, and he has appeared as a guest on many major media networks, such as Fox Business and the CBC of Canada. He is Fergus Hodgson. Fergus, are you ready to roar? I'm ready, mate. We don't right. really have lions in New Zealand, <laughs> so I'm just gonna I'm gonna go with it. Let's get started. What's the most popular animal in New Zealand? What could you make the sound of? <laughs> well, the popular animal is a kiwi, but they don't really make many sounds. They're nocturnal. All so right. yeah, they're the coolest animals ever. So you can just take a little nap for a few minutes and that will recreate that sound. Basically, yeah. <laughs> cool, man. So Fergus, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, first of all? I mean, like I said, you're from New Zealand. Yeah, you've been quite the world traveler. So why did you first leave New Zealand? First of all, I mean, I, I'm really interested in traveling the world and encouraging my guests to do the same. I did mm -hmm. a show with James Guzman, I, I know a friend of yours as well, a few months ago, and we focused on a lot of the reasons why people would flee their native land, not necessarily flee, but at least explore outside of it. Because in America, it doesn't seem like something that's really encouraged too much. You know, I know in Europe, in Australia, New Zealand, you know, in my travels, I encountered so many 19, 20-year-olds that were just traveling the world because that's kind of just what you do at a certain age there. Whereas in the United States, it's really not an option that's presented to most people. I mean, from my perspective, most of myself and my friends were all basically told, all right, you're done with high school, go to college and then do that and then get a job and just, you know, stay here in the U.S. and just follow the script, basically. But, um, you know, you yeah. haven't really done that. So what inspired you to explore the world? My, there's just such a lot to unpack in that question. There is. We got a big briefcase here. <laughs> okay. So in terms of my case, I first, I travel with my family and with sports teams earlier in life, but I left the country to pursue a better academic opportunities because I was going to university in New Zealand. And I was just going through the motion, didn't really care about it. And my family are farmers, so they didn't really, my father has this saying about college that you learn more and more about less and less until you know everything about nothing. And he thought it was a bit of a joke. But anyway, so I just thought if I want to go to university, I should find something a bit more stimulating than this. And I applied for athletic scholarships and received many offers to go to the United States. And I, I took a trip to Boston to visit one university. And I chose to go to Boston University for four years. And it, it changed my life a lot. And in that time, I traveled even more. I used to spend the summers going to Canada, across the United States. We went to England to race. And yeah, so I went back to New Zealand, a different person. And I, I still wanted to stay in New Zealand because we naturally have sentimental values or nostalgic 
feelings towards our home country. But I just didn't find the prospects that I sought there. I was really frustrated. I'd been an athlete for a long time and I was just this broke new graduate or whatever you want to call me. And so I said, forget it. I'm going, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to yonder shores to find uh, brighter opportunities. And I first went to Canada and then I got my break in the United States. But uh, I think you're right that in New Zealand and maybe in Canada a little bit more too, there's more of a, uh, a natural tendency to travel. New Zealand only has 4 million people. So if you're going to explore, you're probably going to have to go beyond the country. <laughs> but I didn't really follow that path, so to speak, because that is usually done after university and it's called the OE or overseas experience. And people will go to usually the UK or somewhere in Europe for a few years and then either stay there or come back to New Zealand. Very few people go to the United States. I hardly ever meet anyone from New Zealand here. And Me neither. I, I honestly can't even say I've met a single person from New Zealand. I have a couple Australian friends, but mm. I literally don't think I've met a single human being from New Zealand in the United States. I've met many traveling. Right. I can hear the accent right away. So I, even if I don't know the person or have not talked with the person, if I'm just walking down the street, I'll recognize the person is from New Zealand. So, But even in my, let's say I've been in and out of the United States for maybe eight to nine years, probably fewer than half a dozen people. It's so few. Anyway. Perhaps the greatest minority in the United States might be uh, New Zealanders, traveling exactly. New Zealanders. I did enter the visa lottery to become a U.S., uh, get a U.S. green card. I've not won it yet. But, but, um, That's interesting. Can we just stop there for a second? Because how does the visa system work when it comes to, and I don't know if it's the same to every country. Mm. I imagine it might be different if you're from Saudi Arabia as opposed to New Zealand. But I mean, is it really literally a lottery? Are you just kind of waiting for your name to be picked out of a hat? Look, mate. The whole immigration system with the U.S. is a nightmare, and I don't encourage anyone to have to. It pains me to think about, but I actually come to the United States as a Canadian citizen because my mother uh, was born there, and I hate bureaucracy, and because I'm a Canadian citizen and because I have a, a degree from the United States, I can come within a certain treaty that is basically the easiest way to get to the U.S. possible, and I can at least work here under that agreement, under NAFTA. And because I, they titled me as an economist, I just show my degree, job offer, and my Canadian passport, and I can come in. I have had lots of problems with that. Even with the simplest route, I've still had problems, and I've had to pay. I mean, I didn't want to go into the complications, but if I were to come as a New Zealander, it'd be much more complicated. And it's getting so draconian now. You have to report, I think, DHS every month. Not in my position as a Canadian, but for many places, you have to report each month where you are. I mean, so in terms of the visa lottery, though, that is, there is this myth that somehow the U.S. government or federal government is planning and selecting people to come to the United States, the best and brightest or whatever. I mean, what a joke. The truth is actually that they do the exact opposite. They say, well, naturally, English speakers will come to the U.S. or certain people from particular countries will come. And we don't like that. So we want to have a more random mix of people come here. I mean, I don't know what, this is such a genius plan. But so. What is the, I mean, obviously it's not, it's not logical, so, but what is the, do you have any ideas about what the logic behind that is? I mean, in terms of government policy, I mean, wouldn't you want, if you were going to restrict immigration, which mm. I'm not necessarily a huge fan of at its base, but in theory, if you're a cultural protectionist, wouldn't you lean more towards the people that speak the same language, that have a somewhat similar culture, as opposed to maybe some other third world countries that are, have a completely opposite culture of ours? 
Not that I'm a cultural protectionist yeah, at all. Yeah, no, no, I'm not either. I think the best culture will win out in the end. I have great confidence in that. And I suspect that very few government officials would want someone like me coming to their country, ironically. I'm not, I'm not violent and I, I'm educated, but I just think they want submissive, dependent people, which I'm not. So. They want maybe more laborers, not more thinkers. Sure. And I'm more of a competitor with U.S. people because I'm very easily interchangeable with them. But so the, the public statement or explanation for the visa lottery is that we want to have a diverse immigrant population to come here, that people from poorer countries or countries that are not well represented in our immigrant population, they should be able to come here too. And so basically the countries such as Mexico or particularly Latin American countries that send disproportionately more immigrants to the United States, you will not be eligible for the visa lottery. But places like New Zealand where no one comes, you'll be eligible. Or, you know, some country in Africa where no one comes as well, you will be eligible. So like maybe they're just really uh, cultural progressives and they want as big of a melting pot as possible. This policy has been around for a long time and we're getting a bit off topic, but... Oh, sure. That's what the show's all about, taking it wherever it goes. <laughs> yeah, so, but there's this, you know, the book about three felonies a day, about yeah. how everyone in this country is committing a crime. Harvey Silverglit. Yeah, the basic trend in democracies, or we can debate whether the US is a democracy or not or whether it should be, but the trend is for more laws, not fewer. The conclusion is that laws are growing or the number of laws are growing in the United States. And this is the consistent across many countries. And the same holds with immigration laws that for whatever reason, people in government or in, in the legislatures are way better at writing more laws than getting rid of them. So there is just a mountain of immigration laws. And I'm sure no one is even going to get rid of this diversity lottery. And just because there are lots of vested interests, there are immigration lawyers who obviously, you know, people pay them to get, enter them. And there are all sorts of tricksters actually who play the game. But the immigration laws have just been getting more and more complicated over time with more and more loopholes, which that's why you need to hire lawyers to get through them. And even for simple things, such as my good friend has married a Mexican girl just a couple of months ago, and he is clean as a whistle, you know, US citizen, no crimes as far as I know. And he married a beautiful Mexican woman and he legally got married, I think, six months early to get the paperwork started because he knew it'd be a pain in the butt. But she's still stuck in Mexico and he's trying to get her to come up here. That's crazy to me. That seems like it should be a no brainer. I mean, I thought that was supposed to be always like, you know, the joke about how, you know, men would go to Latin America and marry a woman so she could get citizenship and just like that, you know, and uh, it sounds like it's not really the case. <laughs> It is not the case. And it's just basically because, of course, that's created a market for people who want to become U.S. citizens. True, there is a marriage market here in Miami where you can pay people to get married. And, I mean, that's just a natural outcome of these laws. And anyway, so but even the simplest, easiest supposed route to becoming a U.S. citizen, which is marrying an American, is apparently very complicated. <laughs> so, And if you don't have money, forget it. I mean, he's actually flying down to Mexico to go to the consulate and do all these interviews. It's ridiculous. That's crazy. I mean, you hear so much about people that when it comes to the immigration debate, they'll say, well, they just need to come here legally. And they say it's so happenstance as if it's just so easy to do. But even for, in your case, I mean, not in your case, but in the case of your friend, he's mm. a law-abiding citizen. It's his wife. It's his family legally by every definition. 
to me, that is a case where it should take absolutely very little, if not nothing, for her to just be over here. Mm. You would think you would just bring her in, come in on a tourist visa or whatever, go to the courthouse, get married, and then they'll just sign your papers right there. You've got a green card or you're a US citizen or whatever. That would be it. But of course, it's not like that at all. And for those people who make that case about obeying the law, I think that in so many instances in political brinkmanship or policies, people are so quick to impose burdens on others. And when the burden is applied on them, suddenly they realize how much of a burden it is. And I actually had a similar situation years ago when I was engaged to a a girl in Latin America. And just getting married, you have to get approval to get married with these organizations to get, say, the marriage license to then get married. You need a license to get married, apparently. And um, the Canadian consulate, they didn't even have one in Ecuador. We had to try and work with one in Colombia. They didn't have a phone number. I mean, I feel like I'm pretty educated or capable person in terms of filling out forms and doing all this junk. And I was struggling to know how we could comply with it. I just think people who say this obey the law rule have no idea what these quote, um, these laws are all about or the way they function and how it's impossible for most people to comply with them. It it can only come from people who are just born here and never dealt with immigration at all. I mean, because if they actually were at all uh, knowledgeable about the process, they wouldn't just say, speak about it in such a simplistic way. But there are also, there are some people who have gone through the very lengthy and costly route and they will say it too. Right, because they say, if I had to do this, well... Yeah, it, they have this it. almost masochistic view of life, <laughs> like you should be, have to suffer to succeed, you know? <laughs> I spent seven years in the dungeon, so gosh darn it, you guys are too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I think they also have a low view of themselves that I don't view myself... When I go through the airport and have the TSA people you know, harass me, I don't say thank you. Many people will go there and say thank you, right? <laughs> right? And I don't have such a low view of myself to think that I should have to be subjected to this sort of thing. But many people seem to think that's acceptable. And also, I, I just I think it's very selective the way that people apply this obey the law mantra. I mean, for example, there are about 10 million people in the United States who drink raw milk, right, against the law. Yep. And... Should we send them all to jail or find them? I mean, almost everyone would say, no, this law is ridiculous. Don't worry about it. But apparently, when it comes to immigration laws, we get very worried about it. In Louisiana, one of these heartland states where I lived for a while, where people are so frustrated with immigration, the Republican candidate for governor who won the nomination as the sitting senator for Louisiana is a known user of prostitutes. No one's saying, oh, enforce the law, send him to prison or prosecute him. Known as in it's completely public. There's not even a question that, you know. No, he was, his phone number was on the list of the DC madam. And the the reason why he slightly lost, unexpectedly lost the run for governor, everyone expected him to win, was that the Democratic opponent ran all these ads saying how he was visiting a prostitute when he should have been voting. And uh, this. (laughs) (laughs) He might have been better off with a prostitute for the people of Louisiana, but. Yeah. So, but anyway, I just thought the hypocrisy was just incredible that these people were supporting this guy and at the same time wanting everyone else to obey the law. Yeah, it's it's crazy. Fergus, let's get a little more into uh, your current project at the Pan Am Post. So, what inspired the creation of this, this sort of online newspaper? I guess you might call it. What um yeah. What weren't you seeing out there from other news outlets that you wanted to make sure could would get covered in some way? Obviously, you guys do focus on civil liberties from sort of the classical liberal perspective. But mm. what, what's the, the main uh, impetus, I guess, for creating this? Yeah, the impetus remains the same, and particularly when we started it about, almost three years ago. I can hardly believe how the time has gone by. There was and still is a vacuum of coverage that 
There is a particular strand of socialism which emanates from Cuba and Venezuela, and it's called the Bolivarian Alliance uh, with uh, Bolivia, uh, Ecuador, and a few other countries such as Nicaragua and then some in the Caribbean. I believe Oliver Stone did the documentary basically all focusing on that group. Of course, from his yeah, direction, south, it was a positive thing. But. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because he, Oliver Stone is an interesting uh, character. He has obviously had a bad experience in Vietnam and is uh, very frustrated with the U.S. federal government, but he's fallen to the trap of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Yep. And that other person can be your enemy as well. And yeah, U.S. government bad, therefore Castro good. Yeah, and the I know. world is it's, a little more simple than that. I mean, a little less simple than that. I, I guess yeah, I say. It's a bit more complicated than that, exactly. And so, but basically, most media outlets are totally misinformed or do not understand what is going on in these countries. And not only that, many of them praise these uh, leaders, which is crazy. I mean, we just thought that there was a a lack of an outlet covering, uh, particularly that spread of collectivism or socialism or authoritarianism, and we wanted to be the number one watchdogs on that, whether it's free speech, immigration, voting rights, or freedom of association. We just thought that there was a lot of raw meat to go after, and there still is a ton of it. Since that time, there has been a little bit of pickup of these leaders, but mainly just puff pieces or jokes, such as U.S. News, uh, was it U.S. News and, and Today or something like that? The USA Today, they had an article about how Venezuela was running out of beer and ha, 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 right? But they don't have an article about how there are about 90 political prisoners in that country and many people have been killed by this regime. So, Well, that's not a fun story. Why would they want to cover that? Of course not. And then you'll have, um, yeah, so there is coverage now in the United States, but it's still a bit of a joke. Well, yeah, Ferguson, we're going to talk more about some of the countries you visited and try to dispel some of the myths regarding healthcare in some of these countries in a moment. But first, I need to tell my listeners a little bit more about how they can improve their healthcare in this country. Because as someone who purchases my own health insurance, I had become extremely frustrated at my escalating premiums and deductibles after the implementation of Obamacare, and this forced me to seek an alternative. And I found that alternative in the concept of health sharing, where groups of like-minded individuals get together to voluntarily cover each other's medical costs. Health Excellence Select will help you take charge of your health care without having to deal with all the costs and hassle of handling paperwork and spending hours on the phone with bureaucrats just trying to get paid. They will handle all the dirty work for you while also providing tons of valuable tools to help you stay healthy. Listeners of this program can get the VIP treatment and get signed up directly by my great representative, Jeff Cantor. Give him a call at 440-283-6849. Tell him Mark from Lions of Liberty sent you. Until then, head on over to lionsofliberty.com slash health for more information. So one country in particular I want to focus on here, and that's a country you've written about quite a bit and a country you actually visited. And it's it's sort of a mystery, I think, to a lot of people because for a lot of good reasons, the fact that mm. it's illegal, the vast majority of people in this country have never been to Cuba. Their only exposure to Cuba is maybe, I don't know, uh, some movies or maybe maybe an Oliver Stone movie. Uh, mm. So, well, first of all, why did you decide to, to go to Cuba yourself? That, that's my, my first question. Right. Yeah, I mean, just like everyone else, I wanted to see Cuba with my own eyes. And I w- was concerned that as much as I commented on Cuba or wrote about it, that until I went to see it, uh, I would not have credibility, particularly because... When people hear me, they know I'm not from the United States or I'm not from Latin America, definitely. And <laughs> English is my first language. But uh, yeah, so I went through it. And I just would correct you a little bit that it's true that it technically is illegal to go to Cuba. But one, people have been defying the law for a long time. They'll just go to Jamaica and get 
you know, fly from there or somewhere sure. else. It's not difficult. <laughs> yeah, it's not difficult at all. And then second, since I think for about maybe 10 years or a decent amount of time, you can have what is, quote, licensed travel, which is really just a sham. Anyone can just say, I'm going for, I don't know, religious purposes or I'm going to see relatives or I'm going to some sort of reason and they'll just let you go. There's no, you know, I don't know of anyone getting rejected from this application and say, no, 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 you cannot go. And so I said I was going for journalism purposes and it was fine. And you're just approved and no problem. Literally, when I went to the airport, the travel agency wrote my name and pen on a visa. And <laughs> I don't think there's a lot of scrutiny on this process. <laughs> it's like the opposite of the process to become a citizen here. Basically. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. So there was no, um, you have to pay for it, obviously. Someone, everyone's getting the, you know, a piece of the pie. But it was just paperwork. I don't think there's actually any pushback. But yeah, so I went to see it myself. And I think, yeah, it's, it, as you said, it is a mystery. And here in Florida, in Miami, many people understand the situation. But I know that back in New Zealand, Canada, the rest of the United States, people, are, I don't want to be dismissive, uh, but I just fear that people are totally misinformed and clueless about what is going on in Cuba and its history. And I don't really blame them because people in the media are misinforming them or people like, uh, what is his name now? The guy who made Michael Moore. For- Michael Moore. That's, that was like I was going to say, because I mean, as far as I know, Michael Moore told me it's fantastic. You go there, you get free medical care and, uh, you know, you get all the diseases cured and no problems. Mm. Not, not so, though. huh? Right. Well, the people like Michael Moore show their tyrannical streak when they do that, because for some reason, if you say we have free health care or we have free housing or we have free food or whatever in our country or everything else is forgiven in their minds. <laughs> Political prisoners, well, that's just the price you pay for having all this yeah. stuff. I mean, for example, if you come here to Miami, there's the Bay of Pigs Museum. And I just walked in there one day. And Must I was be chatting. a very inspiring place. <laughs> no, it's not terribly inspiring. <laughs> so, but so that they have memorials to all the people who died in that invasion attempt or failed attempt. And, and there were just two ladies there. One of them had been in prison there for nine years. And I think the other was maybe 20 years. And, and when I took a course in Cuban studies at the University of Miami, we had one of the former generals come and speak to us, Uber Matos, who fought in the revolution with Castro. And when he did not accept the turn towards communism, because there was a tyrannical ruler or leader of Cuba, I know of many political prisoners. This guy I met, who has now passed away, when he went against Castro, he was put in prison for 22 years. Unbelievable. And I don't know why Oliver Stone and uh, Michael Moore just didn't, don't seem to care about that. Like I said, do they just remain ignorant of the truth behind this guy or these guys in general, these Latin American socialist leaders, or did they, does it just fit their agenda so they ignore the bad stuff? That's a great question. The, who knows what's in their hearts? I mean, that's hard for any of us to tell. Mark, the, the challenge I have working in the media is seeing the way that people channel the information they receive, right? I don't even read the mainstream newspapers anymore. I think they're just junk or garbage, right? Or entertainment. I read all this alternative media, which is so much more interesting and lively. But the truth is that most people receive a very selected line of sources which tell them about some things and not about others. And so I imagine that most people who write about Cuba don't even realize about all the political prisoners. And every Sunday, for example, there is a group of women who peacefully march for the release of these prisoners 
and every Sunday they get arrested. Sounds like a, a great Sunday. It's, it's no champagne brunch. Like a, I mean, they just keep. They've been doing it for a decade or something. It's it's insane. And they're I mean, well aware they're going to get arrested. But yeah, it's I just guess. it's like clockwork. I mean, I don't know. It just seems like you know, it's somewhat insanity. But they're trying to make a point. And also, I don't understand too how when so many people are getting on boats and trying to just get off this island. Is, you have to be deluded now to think it's some kind of great place to be. Yeah, I mean, people are literally risking their lives, risking drowning, risking being eaten by sharks or whatever the dangers in the ocean are just to get away from this place. So you got to think, how great can it really be? It's not that great, man. <laughs> so let me say to you that by going there, it is like being in a movie. I mean, I, I had an apartment I was staying at and inside was okay, although there were security cameras looking into the apartment, which is kind of big brotherish. But once I went out into the streets, I felt like I was in some kind of bad movie. And I just want to reaffirm the point that my sense is that this propaganda effort that we give all this free stuff, housing, medical care, education, whatever, the hunger for that among Marxists or socialists is so strong that they'll come up with every explanation and excuse for everything else that goes on there. So forget the way the methods that they use that that the methods that they use to you know, achieve that are mm. you know violating the rights of everybody in that country. They're forcing them basically into slave labor, paying them twenty or thirty bucks a month for jobs that they're forced to do. But that stuff's all just seems to be brushed under the rug. It is, and they invent. I mean, this there was a, a cartoon I shared this morning. You probably you may have seen it, and it was just describing how the way democracy works. Unfortunately, where the one who throws the most free stuff out often gets the attention. But basically, the socialists, the ones who run these regimes, particularly Cuba and Venezuela, Ecuador, Bolivia, they sell a fairy tale. And the people who support them live in that fairy tale in terms of their information. They'll believe. I mean, in Cuba, they have a monopoly on information, TV, newspaper, whatever. It's all very tightly controlled. So they basically keep this illusion going. Although the people are wiser, they realize, most of them, that it's better and better elsewhere. It's a very common tactic of sort of gangster-like organizations. I mean, I was reading about El Chapo recently because he's been in the news mm. so much. And, and this guy, he provides food and medical care and everything to, to his whole community, just like Pablo Escobar did, because that's how he sort of wins people over. And maybe they ignore all the car bombings and the murders and all that stuff because, hey, this guy's helping us out. Right. Well, I don't see selling drugs as inherently wrong. Sure, sure. But a lot of the methods that are used upon the way are so great. Yeah, I mean, the big challenge is that he's in, I mean, I don't support Al Chapo or anything. Obviously, I think, um, I mean, he's illiterate to begin with. So, I mean, I don't know how on earth he's gotten to the position he is. But I just think that his power is really just to function the drug war. And it's unfortunate that we give money to such a guy. I mean, we prop him up. You know, so, I mean, not we, you and I don't, but the system that we work within does. Right, very much so. So let's touch on Cuba a little bit more, because a, a lot of people seem to believe that the, the actions Obama has taken recently mm. have really, I mean, I hear people say, oh, can't everyone just go to Cuba now? And I mean, as we mentioned earlier, I mean, no, you can, no. but the law hasn't changed in any way. Really, no, it hasn't changed. I think you should know, I mean, this is one of the key reasons for the Pan Am and the work we did was to try and dispel the myths of progressives or socialists. And so, yeah, so in in terms of Obama, all he did really was open up an embassy in Cuba and then he allowed Cuba to have an embassy in the United States. That doesn't really uh, do a heck of a lot. I mean, the laws at hand have not changed. Nothing has been passed in the U.S. Congress. So it's all just executive action. And we've run articles explaining that, in fact, the Castros, the brutal leaders of the island 
and the military, basically military dictatorship, are stronger than ever. They're not threatened. And in fact, right before that speech, or the fateful day when these diplomatic ties uh, commenced, there was a great crackdown on protesters. And there's been a great heightening of crackdowns and imprisonments since this has gone on. So the actual situation for the Cubans has only worsened. There may be to come actual changes with teeth to them, but they have not come yet. And I just fear that there's a total misunderstanding by commentators, media outlets who think that, yeah, Cuba has been opened up or there's this great change. It's all just rhetoric. It's just talk. Sure. I mean, and, I've even seen articles, you know, touting Cuba as a great place to invest, a great place to think about relocating soon. What kind of seems, insanity? What, that seems I mean, insane. <laughs> it's totally insane. I mean, people should know, for example, that I mean, we read an article just, I think, yesterday saying that there's no business in Cuba, only with Cuba, that there are no private enterprises in Cuba. Every company that goes and invests or works in Cuba has to go into a minority partnership with the Cuban regime. So it's, it's about as strong a Soviet economy as you're going to find on this planet. I mean, maybe North Korea or Eritrea or someone like that, but it's extremely severely controlled. Even the people doing work on the street, selling items, they have to be licensed and there's, um, so the only real free market in Cuba is the black market, as far as I'm concerned. And worse than working with the regime is the treatment of people there that it's basically a slave island. I mean, the irony of all these, quote, worker solidarity types is that their island is a slave island, that it's a prison island where people are trying to escape. And where when you open a hotel there, for example, in this partnership with the regime, the salary does not go to the worker. It goes to the regime and the regime gives a small portion of that to the worker. I mean, how low can you go? I mean, I just think it's terrible. It's quite ironic that a lot of the same people that might call for, say, a $15 minimum wage here will be some of the same people that might say, hey, Cuba's great. And uh, meanwhile, people are are barely making that in a month in jobs that they're forced to hold. It's illegal to be unemployed in Cuba. Yeah, mate. I mean, uh, you know, I'm not sure what to say to those people. I don't know what they're thinking. I don't know what is going on in their heads. Well, I'm going to tell them to read the Pan Am Post. That's what I'm going to say to those people. Yeah, one more thing I want to touch on in regards to Cuba. I mean, is there any hope? Obviously, not in the near future. I mean, mm-hmm. is there any movement within Cuba, a strong movement, even within the government that you know of, that could actually see regime change or see a more free society? Or is are we just kind of stuck in a holding pattern here for a while? There are various movements, actually, but I don't hold any confidence in any of them succeeding. But there are noble efforts. One of the sadder killings, extrajudicial or killings from the regime, was a guy called Oswaldo Paya, and he was a democracy activist for many years, and he got signatures seeking to allow free elections for the presidency, and he and his fellow driver were murdered about uh, three years ago, and his daughter and and widow live here in Miami. Uh, I know the daughter, and so she is leading a campaign called Cuba Decide or Cuba Decide, and It's seeking to build some kind of consensus of what a democratic Cuba would look like. But the challenge, mate, is that the people in control, they respond to intimidation. They don't care about these petitions or anything like that. So so there are various movements. There's the Cuban Anarcho-Capitalist Club. There are the Ladies in Whites. There are lots of these movements, but they're very uh, suppressed and very few people want to join them because they know there'll be uh, retribution or there'll be punishment against them for doing so. And it's just very sad, actually, because the Bay of Pigs back in the 1960s 
was an effort by Cuban exiles to work with the U.S. government to basically reclaim their country, and the U.S. government abandoned them to die in that effort. And uh, I just think that was a, a failed endeavor that could have had some work towards it, but I don't hold a lot of confidence. There are many good young Cubans who are ideologically aware or sophisticated trying to make change, and I support them. But I, I just recognize that after about 60 years, almost 60 years of tyranny, it's very hard to change a populace and give them the confidence or will to fight back. They don't even know what a free society would look like. Sure, I mean, numbers-wise, if everybody being oppressed in Cuba just woke up one day and said, enough is enough, the regime could be toppled. But, I mean, they've lived their entire life in a place where they are oppressed, where they do fear jail, where they do fear being killed for any Mm. sort of dissent. Even, you know, I know know, former Cubans I've spoken to, not former Cubans, but, you know, exiles, who said even in their own neighborhoods, they can't really speak freely. They can't use the word Castro because they're afraid of other spies in their own neighborhood. It's a very big brother mentality. Yeah, there's this, um, oh man, I can't remember the name, but they basically have these little spy units throughout the country and they are, and even they have spies abroad too. One of the crazy outcomes from my trip to Cuba was that I went with another a reporter from Argentina, Belen Marty, and when she got back, someone had ransacked her apartment and this happened twice. And then people were almost certain two Cuban spies went to the one of the events she was speaking at because there were these two Cubans whom no one knew, and it was just very an odd experience that they would come to some kind of like human rights event. And so it seems clear that they are monitoring challenges to them abroad. And I've got there are other people I know who do activism work for a free Cuba or Democratic Cuba who've been uh, harassed abroad. It's really fascinating stuff, uh, Fergus, and I'm so glad that you've got the Pan Am Post out there to cover things from this angle because we don't really seem to be getting that anywhere else, certainly not in the mainstream media, that's for sure. So, Fergus, I really thank you for joining me here today to discuss this and so much more that we touched on in regards to immigration. I really find that that whole conversation really fascinating. And before I let you go, why don't you just give us the quick rundown of how everybody can find your work at Pan Am Post and elsewhere and how they can contact you. Yeah, well, I mean, if you want to contact me, just go to Fergus Hodgson on Facebook or Ferg Hodgson on Twitter, F-E-R-G-H-O-D-G-S-O-N. And Pan and Post is as it sounds, P-A-N-A-M-P-O-S-T dot com. And of course, yeah, I mean, I'd love to have more people following us and engaging. And I'm always open to new topics. If people want to um, suggest things that are not covered, we do cover Canada and the United States too. And we're looking for niche topics where items that merit interest but have been overlooked. Well, Fergus Hodgson, best of luck. Keep on roaring. Thank you, my man. Cheers. Take care. All right, guys. I hope you enjoyed my discussion there with Fergus Hodgson of the Pan Am Post. Please do check it out. They've got a lot of great articles. And you know, one reason I love doing this show is often I come into things with the intention to talk about one topic, and then we talk about something else for a while. And that's what happened today. I really wanted to focus on Cuba and Fergus's experiences there and everything he's learned about that country compared to a lot of the myths we've heard. And we did that, but we also got to go into a little bit about immigration and his experience first and his experience dealing with the immigration system in the U.S., which so many people seem to just think that people would just come over here. And, and a lot of people do come over here illegally, but the legal process is not simple. It is not easy at all. I mean, even for someone who has a wife from another country, it's not a very simple process to just get them over here and make them a citizen. So, you know, for people that just seem to act like it's a very simple process, you need to really look into that a little bit more and and give it a little more thought because whatever your stance on immigration is, it's important to understand what is really going on with the situation first. 
And of course, I've mentioned before, I've got a special place in my heart for Latin America. I've done an extensive amount of traveling through that area, and uh, a lot of what Fergus talks about speaks to me from a personal experience. So, And I highly recommend doing some traveling yourself. I try to bring this up whenever it makes sense. But I've done my fair share of traveling in that area, and even if it's not Latin America, I highly recommend just getting out of this country or getting out of whatever country you're in right now if you're listening from somewhere else. I know we do have listeners abroad, so wherever you're listening from, keep an open mind. Think about checking out the world and what's going on out there. Don't just believe uh, you know, an Oliver Stone documentary or a Michael Moore documentary. Don't just believe this podcast either. The point is, you know, find out what's really going on from a number of sources and make up your own mind. And that's the same attitude I try to take here on this show with my sort of presentation of my view on individual rights, individual liberty, how that translates into our modern world. I don't attempt to dictate the way things are or the way they should be, although I do have a very strong opinion on that, but I do try to present different viewpoints and try to help you guys get informed enough to make up your own mind. If you, of course, enjoy what I'm doing and my mission and the way I'm going about it. There are, of course, many ways you can support this program. You can support our sponsors, of course. You can also shop through our Amazon link at lionsofliberty.com slash Amazon. But really, the best thing you can do is tell people about the show. Tell your friends about the show. Share it on your social media, on Facebook, on Twitter. That's really the way to help us the most. Also, if you do subscribe on iTunes, on Stitcher Radio... Please do head over to those platforms and leave us a five-star rating and a great review. That is just another way you can help us get this show into more earbuds out there and get more people talking about the ideas of liberty. If you want to talk about the ideas of liberty with us, you can do so by heading over to the Lions of Liberty Forum on Facebook. Just type Lions of Liberty Forum in your search bar on Facebook and it should pop up for you. Just request to join and as long as you look like a real person and not some sort of spam bot, I'll let you right in. You can have conversations about the podcasts we do, the articles we put out. Uh, we have several past guests in there. It's really just a fun environment for discussing the ideas of liberty when we're trying to grow. So please come and check out the Lions of Liberty Forum. You can, of course, find our main Facebook page, facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty. Find us on the Twitter at Lions of Liberty. Really, there are just so many ways you can find this program. Of course, you can find all our podcasts at lionsofliberty.com slash podcast and everything we've done over at lionsofliberty.com. We'll hope you continue to join us each and every week. And this coming Friday for Felony Friday, hosted by John Odermatt, I will be John's guest and we are going to have an interesting conversation because that's what we do here. That's what we continue to do. And next week we'll be getting back into some more. Yep, that's right. There are even more debates. There's another Democratic debate tomorrow night. There's another Republican debate this weekend. I'm actually going to be out of town, but I have assembled a group of my cohorts, some of which you are probably going to be very familiar with, to gather together to discuss the recent debates. So until then, folks, live long and live free.